Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. In today's world of ever-increasing noise, developing choicefulness is the key to creating safer, happier, and more meaningful lives for ourselves, our children, and our families. Featuring today's top experts, that's what this podcast is all about. We're calling it Choiceful because it involves a funnel of three concepts, awareness at the top, ability in the middle, and control at the bottom. Now, the funnel means this. It means that you've got to be aware before you can develop certain abilities. And you have to be aware and develop those abilities before you can use the abilities to control your life and maximize the control you have in your life. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and media expert, Dr. Rob Breyer. And this is episode 31. Now, in our last episode, we discussed some crucial concepts that are the foundation for our upcoming podcast workshop featuring well-known animation voice actress, Tracy Moore. And in that upcoming workshop, we're going to introduce a really fun and exciting activity for families, an activity designed to strengthen family communication and connection and build choicefulness. We call it the Family Entertainment Challenge. And we would plan to do that in this episode. However, because we've had a lot of requests from parents asking us to address some of the difficult issues that so many families are dealing with today with regard to the pandemic, Tracy will be joining us in the next episode. So today we are very fortunate to have Dr. Tina Payne Bryson with us again. Dr. Bryson is a New York Times bestselling author with Dr. Dan Siegel of The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, The Yes Brain, and The Power of Showing Up. And we talked about the power of showing up in episode 25. She's a child development specialist and a pediatric and adolescent psychotherapist who conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world. She's also the founder of the Center for Connection and the author of a really valuable new book, The Bottom Line for Baby. And we'll be talking about her new book near the end of this episode. I can't think of anyone who is better equipped to offer families important and insightful advice during this very difficult time. So let's get going. So Tina, it's wonderful to have you back today. Welcome again to Live Above the Noise. Thank you so much. I think now's a good time to talk about living above the noise. We have new and challenging kinds of noise happening, don't we? We really do. You know, um, we define noise on Live Above the Noise as distortion, distraction, disruption, and overload. And uh, this pandemic has just caused an incredible amount of that. Uh, it's kind of been exponential for people. And I saw recently that you did a, a wonderful little video. And in that video, you said, if we want to be the haven in the storm, we can't be the storm. So we have to calm our internal storm first. I just thought that was just an absolutely wonderful statement. And I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that. You know, parents are out there and I'm sure they're feeling like they're in the middle of the storm right now. How do they how do they handle this in terms of both their families and themselves? And if you could speak to that, that would be wonderful. 
Yeah, I think, you know, we have to remember that the brain loves predictability. When we have predictability, we feel a lot safer and our brains um, can kind of be in more default mode. So that leaves a lot more space for creativity or just having your mind to be focused on other things. And right now the world is so unpredictable. I mean, even things we think we finally know, then the next week that turns out to not be the truth. You know what I mean? We just have, it's really hard to find credible information right now. It's really hard to have much predictability. And so that can create a lot of emotional storms. And I think a lot of, a lot of people are experiencing a very roller coastery kind of life. You know, some days you feel like, like I'll just speak for myself. Some days I feel like I'm on it. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm making for dinner by the morning and I have the groceries to make the dinner and I've got my schedule and I accomplish things and I feel on it. Um, and then other days I feel like I can barely figure anything out, you know? And I think that that's just a very normal, as we want to really normalize that experience that when the world is unpredictable, when our lives are unpredictable, it takes a tremendous amount of mental and emotional energy. And so that sort of drops our capacity. And when our capacity is much lower than the demands of the situation, that big gap can leave us feeling very stormy inside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things we talked about the last time I was on your podcast from the power of showing up is that we have this inborn natural system as mammals that allows us to more likely survive and be resilient. And that's that attachment system. So that when we're in distress, we are more likely to automatically reach for our attachment figures. And when they show up for us, when they provide the four S's where we feel safe and seen and soothed and secure that when our needs are there, then someone will see them and show up for us. That creates a tremendous buffer against stress. So I'm hearing from parents and teachers, and I think this was very much the case in the spring, a little less so over the summer, and now back up again now that school has started, Mm. that parents feel really overwhelmed. And our kids are feeling overwhelmed as well. And so what they really, truly need from us right now is for us to be a safe haven. So that even if the world is chaotic, and even though they're really not getting a lot of their developmental needs met right now, that we have created in our relationship with them and in our homes, a safe haven that is like, it's like they're out on the ocean, the storm tossing their boat about, but they come into our harbor. We can also call it a safe harbor mm-hmm. where they can feel protected and connected. And so if we want to be that safe place, we can't be the storm ourselves. Now, of course, we're going to be the storm at times. So what's really required of us is to do some self-care and also to find ways to regulate our own nervous systems so that we really can be that safe harbor for our kids. Do you have any suggestions? I know you talk about toxic stress versus tolerable stress and that being relative to resilience. How does a parent do self-care? How does a parent drop this level of stress down, which, as you mentioned, everyone is feeling to a massive extent right now? Yeah, you know, everybody's a little bit different, but we know from the science that there are things that we know, we can call them sort of the roots of wellness, like things that we know that if we cultivate them, they make us less likely to fall apart. (laughs) Let's just be really practical, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, some of those things are the basic things everybody already knows, but we're not necessarily good at being protective about and making sure happen. Sleep, you know, sleep is just crucial for our brains to be integrated and allow us to have 
the most access to our problem-solving prefrontal cortex. Um, exercise is tremendously important, even in many studies, more, more impactful than medication when it comes to anxiety and depression. So those are just some basic things that we know about, but a couple of just really practical things to try. Yeah. One thing that people don't often know is that emotion does start in our brain, but we have to remember that the brain is embodied. What I mean by that is it's part of the entire nervous system. We even have bundles of nerves that communicate like mini brains in our heart region and in our gut intestinal region. And you have this amazing vagus nerve, which is the largest nerve that runs through our body and this nervous system that is incredibly intelligent. So a lot of emotion doesn't come from the brain in your skull. It actually comes from the nervous system and the embodied brain, our bodies. Hmm. What that means is that by the time you recognize I'm stressed or I'm anxious or something like that or angry, your body already knew that. Your muscle tone has changed. The way you're breathing has changed. And so this has been an incredible thing for me to learn about because what that means is if I can move my body or change my breath in some way, I can actually influence my emotions and how much more clarity I have to even problem solve. Um, I was able to use this therapeutically really successful, even with really young kids. So for example, Amy Cuddy's work, she's out of Stanford. Um, she did that amazing study on the power pose versus kind of that like floppy pose pose. Yeah. And um, what she saw in her research was after three minutes of holding like a more powerful shoulders back, arms in the air or hands on the hips kind of posture versus kind of a slumped over collapsed posture that within three minutes, hormonal changes. When we're in a more power based kind of posture with our shoulders back, we actually breathe better. But also what she found was that cortisol levels dropped. So stress went down and testosterone went up and testosterone allows us to mobilize and problem solve and make things happen. And the opposite happened when they were in the powerless posture. You know, I had clients who had massive separation anxiety and I was able to, within just 20 minutes, have them feel really comfortable being away from their parent by holding their bodies in a brave posture and by playing, by doing play, holding that posture. So I think this is really good to know. So if you're feeling really depressed, we can do top down things, which is where we would think about things we're grateful for, or we might um, listen to something that's encouraging or motivating, or we might challenge our negative thoughts. You know, that would be like a top down because we're using the top part of our brain and we're hoping that that thinking approach shifts how we feel mm -hmm. in our lower parts of our brains and in our bodies. But this is what I'm talking about are more bottom up approaches where we're using our bodies to influence how our brain is functioning. So in this case, if you're feeling depressed, if you pull your shoulders up and pull your chin up a little bit, almost like a brave posture or a confident posture, and you hold that posture for a few minutes, it's likely to start shifting how you feel. Same thing with anxiety. I would have my super anxious kids in therapy, just pretend you're the floppiest, heaviest, wettest noodle you can think of. And they would just sort of drape their body all over my couch. And they would, we would hold that position for three to five minutes. And once their breathing slowed down and I could see that it was working, they totally were able to start talking about things that typically activated high states of anxiety, but in a relaxed, more regulated state. And the reason that this is so cool is because the brain develops what it gets practiced doing. So if we start practicing shifting our emotional states by the way we breathe or the way we posture ourselves, our brain will start to do that more automatically. So it becomes a really good tool. So 
just one other thing besides our posture is just our breath. When our exhale is longer than our inhale, it can activate the parasympathetic branch of our nervous system, which is like turning our volume down. It's like helping us calm down. So that's a really helpful one as well. What do you think, Tina, the biggest trade-offs that moms are making today with kids at home? Because, you know, I, I agree that this combination, this biopsychosocial combo is absolutely critical to integrate the three dimensionalities. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm wondering about what parents are trading off because kids are there all the time now and they're in a more confined kind of situation than when kids are allowed to go out plus school and have that kind of freedom. Would you say that the physical piece is a significant trade-off that needs to be addressed because of the change that's occurring in context? Yeah, I mean, the problem is we really don't have great options, right? So sending kids back to school is not, in many cases, not safe. But having kids be at home on their devices all day is not a great option either. And the way I think about it is sort of what I was saying earlier is what we are asking of parents right now to be full-time breadwinners, right? To be earners and have full-time jobs and to be the full-time caregivers of children, or if they're old enough to be in school, to be the full-time sort of teacher or the person that's in charge of all the logins and making sure they're staying on top of things. That is too much for one human to do. It's just literally impossible to do that well. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about our capacity and the demands, and there's too big of a gap there, we're really not going to feel very successful. So that's adding to that toxic stress you were you mentioned earlier that I didn't address yet. You know, there's positive stress, which is like what gets us up in the morning and it motivates us. Then there's tolerable stress. And tolerable stress is like, this is tough, but I can handle this. As long as it doesn't go on too long or get too much worse, I've got this. I can handle it. And tolerable stress makes us resilient. Tolerable stress is like, wow, I dealt with something really difficult and I did it. I made it through. I, that was great. And so it makes us stronger. Toxic stress is not good for us. It actually makes us more fragile. And so the way our stress systems are supposed to work is that if we're crossing a street and a truck almost hits us, that's a really frightening moment. Our neuroception for danger gets activated. So our fight, flight, freeze system gets activated and we make it across the street. And then we're like, oh my gosh, that was so scary. And whew, that was a close call. And you know, our body shakes and we feel tension in our muscles. We might feel some emotions. And then we move on, right? We're like, okay, I'm okay now. I'm going to be a little more careful when I cross the street next time, but I'm good. The problem is with these demands being outside of what is possible for many people. And then you add in also grief. Like it's not just, yes, of course, if someone has passed away because of COVID, but also the grief of all of the things we're missing out on, like high school graduations and first day of preschool and weddings and all of these things that people are missing out on, you add in a layer of grief. And then if you add in also financial and economic job stability, we're layering in so much stress that is not stopping. So it's like trucks coming at us every few minutes. So it's really hard to recuperate from that. So I think what parents are having to give up in order to do that is I think a lot of presence, which is what I know you all focus so much on. I think parents are very much in survival mode right now. And I think that what's happening for a lot of us is we are doing too many things. And so we're just not doing well at really any one of them. 
However, I do want to say there are some really big positives that I'm seeing as well. Some kids were so overscheduled and were feeling so much pressure at school and were not getting enough sleep and were not getting good quality time from their parents. And that has all shifted. Some kids are doing much better because they're getting sleep. They're getting quality focused time with their parents. And uh, they're not feeling that same stress. In fact, there was a study in the UK that just came out a couple of weeks ago saying that the rates of anxiety and depression among middle school and high schoolers, particularly females, is much lower than it was pre-pandemic. So I think there's some lessons to be learned there as well. But I think parents are in survival mode mostly. And I think they're in the noise. It's hard for them to live above the noise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, from the standpoint of the parent themselves, is there also, and you kind of touched on this, this element that you have to be perfect, you have to do everything, you, you have to take care of all of these things. And it seems like people can be very hard on themselves in general. Could you just speak to that a bit? Because I'm, I'm sure that must be something that you're finding with all the families that you're working with as well. Yeah. You know, parents are pretty good at beating ourselves up emotionally, you know, and having regrets and feeling like we're not the parent we want to be. Um, Typically, when parents feel that way, it's because they're parents who care a lot and are really are intentional. And so they're probably not the parents who need to be hard on themselves. So I'll say that first off. The second is one of my favorite articles that I saw in this whole um, period was the New York Times parenting article where the author wrote that her child had had like 57 quesadillas since COVID started. That was all she wanted to eat. And I was like, yes, we are in the time of the 57 quesadillas. Like, keep making those quesadillas. And uh, and I think, yes, we definitely should not expect ourselves to be perfect ever, but especially right now. And I think one thing that's helpful to know is that if we remember back when all of us had little kids, and this is actually still um, advice. I just spoke with a pediatrician this morning. She said, yeah, that's still current advice. The advice pediatricians give is that don't worry about what your kid eats in a day. Think about what they're eating over a week and over a month. Mm. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about our parenting right now. Yes, you're going to have days where you're really grumpy or days where you're really short and impatient with your children. And then you might even have weeks like that. And some people feel like their parenting is completely tanked since the beginning. But remember that the relational experiences we provide our kids, like think about what's your kid's experience of you and your relationship over the week and over the month and over the year and over all the years you've had with them so far, that the brain is influenced from these relational experiences and So if there's been a tough spell, we can really just not worry about that too much. We want to make a repair with our kids and say, you know what, I've been thinking about this and I feel like I've been really grumpy and I haven't been as kind to you with my words and I haven't been as patient and I'm working on it. Will you forgive me? And so we make the repair. It's never too late to make a shift. And so we can recommit ourselves and ask for a do-over, right? Um, Give ourselves a do-over. I guess my favorite way to think about it is, I don't know that I've talked about this ever, so I'm being a little bit clunky in how I say this. I think when we feel regret or we feel bad about something that that is coming from us to our kids, I really want us to move from feeling shame because when we get into a shame spiral, it actually makes us more likely to continue to be impatient and grumpy because that's a really un- 
present state in the nervous system. Mm-hmm. But then we have parents feeling shame about their shame, right? So we don't we don't want to go down that path. Yeah. But what we can do instead is say, okay, when I feel regret, this is actually a really amazing opportunity. And I'm going to start with curiosity. And I'm going to say, I want to be a great parent. I want my kids to have great experiences with me. And I think I'm harder on myself than I need to be. I'm, I'm much more of a hero in my kids' eyes than I think I am. But let me start with curiosity and say, what is it that's getting in the way? It's not that I'm a bad parent. It's that there are things that are getting in the way of me being the kind of parent I want to be or the kind of parent my child needs me to be right now. What are those things that are getting in the way? Maybe you're not getting enough sleep. Maybe you're not getting enough alone time. Maybe you don't have enough support. And to really start picking one or two things that are really getting in the way and then problem solve around those things. So really being curious about that. And I think one other sort of lens shift I want to add to that is that when we feel regret or like, oh gosh, I wish I had known this before. I wish I had done this differently. That I think is a really amazing, positive thing. And here's why. If you never had those feelings, it would mean you were continuing the same way as you were as a parent without any evolution or insight. Right. So when we've had those feelings, it means we have had some insight into something. It means we're evolving, we're growing, we're evaluating, we're being intentional. And so just if you have those feelings, it probably means you're a better parent than you think you are, but it also means you're growing and evolving. And I think that's a really important thing that we focus on when we feel those negative feelings. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Knowing Live Above the Noise, uh, you're aware that our key concept on Live Above the Noise is something we call choicefulness. And choicefulness is composed of three things, awareness, ability, and control. And it's like a funnel. At the very top is your awareness, which then funnels down into your ability or the development of your abilities, which then funnels down into the control that you have over your own life. I love that. So in this pandemic, is there a way to look at where we are now and say, okay, we didn't want this, but we're in it. But how do we advance our areas of awareness, abilities, and control based on the situation that we're currently in? I love that question. I think the way that um, Dan and I have written about the idea of awareness is that without awareness, we don't have choice. We just continue with the automaticity of how we've always done things. So when we have awareness, it really does allow us to examine and shift our abilities and to have some agency or control. Um, A couple ways we can facilitate awareness. One is we've got to have moments of pause without input. Um, I took a shower last night. I took an extra long shower last night. I had a really good idea for an article because I think I just stopped for a moment. I wasn't actively doing something. I wasn't actively thinking about something. There was just a space for that. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times there is so much noise. And, you know, like yesterday I had interviews and podcasts all day because I had a book come out this week. And then as soon as I finished with that and the hordes of emails, then I went and made dinner. Then I sat and had dinner with my kids. And then I went back to the computer. Like it just, you know, eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to stop. I took a walk with my husband last night and then I took a nice long shower. I think we have to have pauses. And I think that's the case even in our relationship with our kids, like at bedtime, if we're reading stories, make sure there's at least a few minutes where you're not just reading or talking. You just pause and you allow the space for your child to bring something up or to talk. Um, So I think we need to have pauses. The other thing is 
We can even use our devices for good. We can even set an alarm or an automatic email that comes to us or something that would remind us. I learned this from my one of my son's first grade teachers. Every Friday, she would sit with these first graders and she would say, let's reflect on our week. What went well this week? And she would just keep it really open. And these first graders were amazing. They had tremendous memories and insight. And then she'd say, what didn't go so well this week? And then she moved into how can we be problem solvers about those ways? And she just really had this reflective dialogue. I think we need to have rituals around awareness, whether that's just two minutes when we wake in the morning or a few minutes as we fall asleep or a journal time or even a 10 or 15 minute walk that's planned without listening to a podcast or a a book where we're just listening to nature and not actively doing something. We have to create spaciousness for awareness to happen. But in those moments, we can sort of ask ourselves, you know, is this going well? I try at least a few times a year to check in with my kids and say, is there anything in the way that I'm interacting with you or supporting you or not supporting you that you would like for me to do differently. You know, you're, you're developing and changing all the time. I want to make shifts to be the parent you need me to be. Is there anything you want me to know? Anything that would be more helpful if I did it differently? And sometimes they'll tell me something that's really easy, you know, like, yeah, you know, don't come in and just start talking at me. I might be in the middle of something in my mind. Can you just say, Hey, do you have a second? And give me a chance to say, give me a few minutes. So just little things like that can be really helpful for our relationship. So we start with that awareness piece. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. Um, In terms of increasing our abilities, I think, you know, we can think about, and this is Dan Siegel's term, our window of tolerance. I love that phrase. And it's this idea of like, what can we tolerate without completely falling apart? Like, where's our our sort of... um, you know, resilience zone, right? Where can we handle this? And we can actually expand our window of tolerance. We can expand our ability and our capacity. We truly can. And I mentioned some of those things, sleep and exercise, but especially right now, given what's happening, one of the things that I think is super important because the brain hates unpredictability and our neuroception for danger and our threat reactivity gets activated when that happens, we can intentionally create predictability in our lives by having routines, by having rituals. You know, my kids had their first day of school. You know, they were wearing t-shirts and shorts and no shoes and no backpacks. And we still took the first day of school pictures on the front porch like we always do. Right. You know, I actually made them put masks on for one of the pictures just for the memory of it. But creating, you know, family dinner times, creating a schedule like I really am working on a sleep schedule because I tend to stay up really, really late to get more work done so that I can have more time to be with my friends or with my family during the day when people are around. And I'm like, well, I'll just stay up late and do it when no one else is around. But we really need to create predictability in our lives through these routines and rituals. I think other things that really expand our capacity, our ability and our control is funny enough play. And I don't mean just for your kids. I mean, for us adults too. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that really makes a difference in a quality of presence we can provide to ourselves and our relationships is do we have moments of joy? Um, We can have moments of shared joy with people and moments of our own just delight. Even when we are afraid, even when we're feeling anxious, when we do that, when we take time to laugh or to be playful, 
it actually stretches our capacity because play states and anxiety fear states are actually fairly incompatible in the nervous system. So when we are playful, when we have moments of shared joy, and you know, if you have little kids or teenagers, like even watching a funny video together or playing keep it up with a balloon or putting peanut butter on your the roof of your dog's mouth and enjoying that for a moment, all of those kinds of things actually reduce the nervous system arousal that we have and make us have much more capacity and ability as well. Tina, uh, you mentioned the term presence. And my experience with some parents has been that they believe they're present when they're not present because they don't understand what that term means. And so from your experience, can you define presence and then give us a sense of If you're in a family dynamic, how you can become aware that you are not present and what it is that you need to do to change. And wouldn't that be something that is relative to brainwave patterns, that you're shifting a brainwave pattern in order to be present? Oh, Rob, I'm so glad you asked that. It's such an important question. Being physically present is not what I'm talking about, right? So we can be physically present, but completely checked out. And you can feel that when you're with someone and you know they're not with you. They're not tracking you. It's funny, as I as you were asking, I was thinking about how would I define presence? I mean, it's actually something really hard to define. But in a way, when I thought about how I would answer this question just now, I actually have the same answer for how I actually define the word mindfulness. So I think of mindfulness as paying attention on purpose without judgment. Wow, that's beautiful. That's how I define mindfulness. It's not necessarily meditation. Meditation is a way you can do that. But I can do a mindful walk. I'm out with my dog. I don't have any input going in except just the world. And I'm noticing the feel of the air on my skin. I'm noticing the sound of the birds. I'm noticing you know, my dog panting. Um, it's kind of a, you're steeped in a sensory experience when you're paying attention on purpose without judgment. And that's actually how I would define presence too. Mm. And so it's really about showing up in a moment where you are paying attention on purpose. And when you really look at the science of what even emotional connection or emotional intimacy is, it's almost always when you kind of really go down to the basics of how people define it, it's almost always about joint attention. So if your kid is like, this is the best stick I've ever found, and you don't really care that much about sticks, but if in that moment you're like, wow, what do you like about it? Where did you find it? What's your favorite part of the stick? You know, whatever, what are you going to do with the stick? So you really just join with attention with your full presence. I have an amazing mom. I'm so, so lucky to have such an engaged, amazing mom. She, she was a stay-at-home mom all my going up, growing up years, but she became a neuropsychologist and a clinical psychologist, and she's a phenomenal therapist. And we're very much alike in our temperament in many ways. Like my favorite birthday present my husband ever gave me was a label maker. I love to be organized, and my mom loves her label maker more than anything, too. We're similar in that way. But she and I have totally different speeds. I would describe her as she's like a dove. She's got this very peaceful presence. She even has like a slower way that she talks. And I describe myself as a hummingbird. I am all over the place. I'm from one flower to the next. I mean, you know, you even hear how fast I talk. I'm just a pedal to the metal, kind of love to be productive, go, go, go kind of person. 
And so, and especially as my life got busy, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom until the book, The Whole Brain Child came out, which happened to be when my youngest started kindergarten. So it was perfect timing. Um, And then these books came out and I was asked to engage with audiences and things got really busy. And I sometimes forget to even stop to think about being present. I'm not present enough to know I need to be present. I learned something amazing that has been revolutionary for me. It was an accidental conversation one time. I don't even remember the person's name. I don't remember where I had this conversation, but I remember the content well. The woman I was speaking with was a chaplain. And I said, oh, really? Like, that must be really challenging and very difficult at times. And she said, yes, I'm sitting bedside with people in hospice or in their homes or in the hospital in their last moments of their life. And she said, do you want to know the most important thing I do is my job? And I said, yes, of course. And she said, I sit down. That's my most important thing I do in my job. And I said, tell me more about that. What do you mean? And she said, when I stand bedside, I communicate to the person I have other things to do. I've got a few minutes for you. I'm here, but I'm not sure for how long. She said, when I sit down, they immediately know you're important to me. You matter. I have time for you. And I thought that was so powerful. And so I started practicing it. And so let's say I'm doing stuff. If my kid or my husband comes into the room and I might need to say, hang on just a second. And I I will say to my kid, Uh, what you have to say is so important to me. So I really want to listen well. So give me a couple of minutes because I can't listen well if I listen right now. And I'm telling that to myself as well. But if I in the moment can, I turn my phone face down, I close my computer, I sit down and I just make myself available to give them my full attention. That's key is just really following the other person's lead, following the child's lead and paying attention on purpose, being available emotionally and with your ears and your full self, not just having your body in the room. I totally agree with you. And my wife has a a serious chronic illness. She's had it for many, many years. And she has one particular doctor that she goes to that stands out in my mind. She She has a number of good doctors, but this one, whenever we come in for an appointment, and I'm usually there at an appointment, the first thing he does is he turns away from his computer and sincerely asks the question of, how are you doing? Tell me about how things have been. And he doesn't try to write anything down. He doesn't do anything. And this lasts a few minutes while this is an honest conversation. And unfortunately, from our experience, it's not that usual. No, you often go in and, and they're on their device and they're writing down their notes and their various other things. But But the power of what he does says exactly what you just said, was that I actually see you as a person and I understand that you're important and I want to help you. And it's majorly important. And I can see, you know, from a family perspective, just how important that is. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that shows up all the time that's unfortunate is that people use media to be together as if they actually were together. You know, so let's go watch a movie together, which isn't a bad thing, except right. a lot of people get in the zone of we're sharing, we're, we're doing things together, but it's not necessarily present whatsoever. It's two people paying attention to outside information. And so it, it's an illusion that there's presence engaged with both intention and attention in the dynamic between the two. So And that's happening, I think, more and more because coping is necessary and people 
say, I, I need a break. Let's go do this t- together. But it's really not the same whatsoever as presence. No, it, it's certainly, um, you know, nothing wrong with it. There's great times to say, gosh, we all need a break or we need some downtime or let's do this, you know, watch this movie together. But it's not a substitute for what we're talking. Right. Um, I think, you know, and it doesn't even have to be quantity of presence. It needs to be quality of presence. You know, every once in a while, we'll get into like this movie jag. Like we were at the beginning of COVID and, um, and at the beginning of summer, we were watching trilogy. So we watched all the Lord of the Rings and we watched all the Rockies and we watched all the aliens. You know, we did all of this because my boys were 14 and up. But what we consciously did was instead of having dinner on TV trays, we went outside. We always eat dinner outside because we're in Southern California. And even if it's really hot, it's really pleasant in the evenings. We still sat down and had dinner together and really had that quality time together. Then we would start the movie. So there's certainly a place for having screens where we're doing, you know, kind of in the same room, but, you know, oftentimes when we're watching movies, I'm also working or looking things up or I'm kind of, I've seen the movie. So I'm sort of surfing on my device while I'm double devicing, but it doesn't substitute for this other thing. And, you know, it's interesting as you say that that's what a sort of dismissive avoidant pattern of attachment is like, is we're very focused on the external world, but we're never going to go with anything more intimate. We're not going to be sharing attention on each other. We're going to just be focused on the weather and the dog and doing things together, but not necessarily being together. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I was going to do this at the end of the end of our episode, but you mentioned play and then you've mentioned this. And I wanted to talk about something that um, our audience may be aware of from the last podcast, but I, I wanted to get your thought on it as well. Our, our next episode, we have something that is designed to do exactly what you're talking about. We call it the Family Entertainment Challenge. And what it is, is um, Tracy Moore, who was the original voice of Sailor Moon, and she's been uh, on the Care Bears and various other things, is a personal friend. And so she has done a podcast with us. And what she's done is she's done a workshop, basically, a workshop for parents to produce with their kids a two to three minute story. So the idea would be that family would be creating their own story. It could be a fantasy story, it could be various other things. And we give them some story starters if they want to use those particular things. And then Tracy, using us as demos, explains how a parent will work with their kids to create the story, to get the child to create different character voices, to do sound effects, and to put all of these things together into a two or three minute audio and then send them on to us in which we're then going to choose a couple of them. And then those people will get a special workshop with Tracy, a virtual workshop. But the whole idea is to create this kind of connection where it's entertainment based or in our world, entertainment, which is choiceful entertainment. A family can actually have fun, which you're talking about, learn more about what their kids are like, explore the limits, get silly, get creative, and do these things in this kind of environment. And that's that's what's coming up next. And as I say, I was going to talk about it at the end, but I just thought I'd love to get your reaction to it. And the other thing that's so interesting about it is Tracy nails the idea of the power of the voice. And, you know, we we don't pay attention to the potential of a child exploring their own emotionality through characters that have different voice ranges and emotions. And once you start creating your own story 
and then you can create the voice that goes with the characters you create. You're actually dealing with something at a completely different sensory level that is usually never talked about, which is like, what is the range and potential within your voice? How many ways can you use it? How do other characters use it? How do they communicate? You know, what characters use what types of voices to, to communicate what kinds of feelings? There's that full range of possibility just in the idea of the voice. So going beyond just vision and auditory phenomena, moving into a sensory voice use as voice actor is really sort of an untouched area that, that is, I think, really open to a lot of discovery. I love that idea so much. And I'm thinking about, I've got so many things happening in my brain as you told me about that. I mean, one of them is thinking about, it's a whole other way to think about and access our nonverbal communication. I'm always thinking about how experiences change our brains, right? And so as kids experiment with different voices and how they communicate emotion differently and even temperament and intentions and goals and challenges and all of those things, it's giving kids practice, understanding the quality of different voices and how that's related to different emotional states and circumstances. So I see it as a way that will actually incredibly powerfully increase their emotional intelligence and their ability to understand their voice shifts in some way. They might even notice, oh, that's a more angry voice, or that's a more embarrassed voice or something like that, where they understand their own emotions more deeply as they listen to their own voice and they understand the emotions of others. I think that's really powerful. It's also, you know, when we think about nonverbal, we often teach kids about faces, right? We teach them about, does that puppy look sad? Or, you know, we're reading with them and we talk about different facial expressions. But I think you're right. We don't talk about many of the others. You know, this is Dan's, Dan Siegel's really good stuff is these seven we talk about it in The Power of Showing Up as well, but these seven nonverbal things. One is facial expression. The next one is tone of voice. So facial expression, tone of voice, posture, gestures, timing, and intensity of response. So all of those features kind of getting woven into that, I think is just genius. And one other thought is, to me, it's another way to do some of that sort of more bottom-up kind of thing. You know, typically when kids are making these voices, my guess is, it won't just be their voices, that they'll be moving their bodies in different ways to make those voices happen, to get that sort of um, rhythm and that, that quality of voice. And so they're really experimenting with these different things. And I've used different voices and accents sometimes in, in really silly ways to get my kids to cooperate at different times, which works really well. <laughs> like if I do Mary Poppins voice, they'll be much more likely to laugh and, yeah. and do what she says, you know, instead of complaining or whatever. But I think too, that it's really allowing them to be playful. But as we know that kids do is they often use other characters or voices or other kind of more third person ways of communicating their interior thoughts, which is why play therapy is so fascinating. If you just exquisitely pay attention to a child as they play, you learn so much about what's happening in their internal world. And I think these voices are such a great way to do that. One of the famous stories about me as a small child was after my sister came along, I wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> and uh, I, I liked being the center of everyone's universe. Um, but my aunt was babysitting my sister and me, and she was 
paying attention to my sister. And apparently I wanted her attention and I was two and a half or three. And instead of saying, I would like your attention, I said, the bear is very mad and angry, right? So I didn't own it. I didn't say I am mad and angry. I said, the bear, I don't know what bear I was referring to, (laughs) but I think these voices and the characters and being able to breathe life into them with that is going to take it to a whole other level besides just the play piece. I think it's beautiful. Well, thank you. And in the same episode, we talk about power styles and the power styles that people have. And so integrated into the story that parents will be creating is the idea of a child recognizing what power styles are being used, physical, emotional, et cetera, intellectual, and what is the main power styles for these characters. So the whole idea is to help that child learn to understand what they're doing and understand other children and being able to reach that point of having the empathy and the understanding of what am I seeing when people are reacting a certain way or what am I displaying when I am doing that relative to their their age and stage, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, but we're excited about it. And it's a really fun episode. We have recorded it. We're just putting the final touches on it. And that's going to be the next episode. So thank you so much for your reaction to that. It's surprising how much even older kids really enjoy doing silly stuff like that. During the pandemic, we played a lot of games and things like charades. And we love to play Speed Scrabble where you use just the tiles and not the board. And you have to make your own kind of acrostic and keep drawing letters to make it work. And anyway, just silly things like that, though. You just think, oh, well, they're teenager, teenage boys. They're not going to be into it. But they really still do need our attention, our affection. They need to be hugged. They still just love playing games, even with their parents. Maybe it's because there's no other options. I'm not going to take credit for being that great of a mom uh, that they just love being with me because they are teenagers and developmentally, that would be weird if they wanted to spend all their time with me. That would not be a good sign. (laughs) But I think even something like this for people who are listening to that option, thinking, oh, my kids may be too old for that. People would be surprised. Older kids get into that kind of stuff too. Yeah. And we're not restricting it to any particular age, but um That's terrific. Um, I just want to ask you one more question. I want to ask you about your new book. I'm really excited to hear about your new book. Rob and I have been talking about it, and uh, we want to get that out there to our audience. But I just want to ask, is there one thing from the standpoint of, we talked about the family and the parent reacting to their kids. Is there one thing that you can offer in terms of during this pandemic time with regard to, you know, your partner or your spouse and dealing with this whole thing? Is there something that sort of creates a little more teamwork in the situation? Because I'm sure that given that many families, the adults in the family may be at odds given the stress going on. Can you speak about that at all? Yeah, I've been married 26 years. And I think there are two things that I can think of that I think are really important. One is very much in line with everything we've been talking about, Just because you're together in the same space all the time does not mean that it's relational quality time. I think one of the things that's happening is you're like, I see that person all the time. And if I hear them chew one more time, if they eat one more, you know, that noise, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to live with them ever again. Right. So it's like a lot of togetherness. Right. Um, But I think because we're with each other, you think, oh, we, we don't need a date night or we don't need some time where we're just hanging out together, where we're not going through the agenda or we're not passing a kid back and forth or we're not arguing. And so I think it's really important whether it just be, again, it doesn't have to be quantity. It really can be quality. Taking 10 minutes to go for a walk around the block or 
you know, not just turning the TV on at night, but just making sure that at least a couple of times a week you're spending, even if it's a small amount of time where you're talking about something other than all the business Mm -hmm. or you're just checking in with them or you're debriefing about something, you know, where you're just talking about something that you've been wrestling with. But I think having that same idea of shared joy where you're paying attention on purpose and you're just really enjoying each other. So I think that's really important is to not confuse being together all the time with that quality of presence. Mm. The other thing I, I would say is, yes, marital conflict is at an all-time high because people are so stretched and so stressed. So again, our capacity is just completely overwhelmed. And so this is actually what the nature of the attachment system is about, is that when we are in distress, that is when we most need connection. And there's a little bit of a fake it till you make it kind of thing where you may not feel like spending time with your spouse because they're bugging you. But I think if we remember that even if we don't feel like it, this is a time that calls for more kindness and more generosity and more connection and more laughter. So just making sure that you are even just setting your intention, maybe in the morning when you wake up to say, I want to be the safe harbor in my family today for my co-parent, for my spouse, and for my child or children. So setting our intention, again, it's back to that awareness is just what I say to people, and I believe this is true, is that if we make a change, it impacts the whole system. So if your spouse is not being kind to you, if you start, even if you don't feel like it, doing small acts of kindness, letting people off the hook, be like, that bothered me, but I know you're having a stressful day, so no big deal. And you let it go without getting into a big argument. Those things pay off and it starts changing the way the other person responds to us as well. So I think just being intentional about those two things, I think could make a big difference. And they're such tiny, small steps that I think they're really doable. Well, thanks so much for that, Tina. And uh, now please tell us about your book. The bottom line for baby, and you know, we're going to have some of our audience that has children uh, that are very young, or have friends that have children that are very young. And looking over your book, it's filled with all kinds of valuable things. Could you tell us about it a little bit right now? Yeah, I'm really proud of this book. It's my first solo book. I love writing books with Dan, and will definitely continue to do that. Um, This book came about because it was the first book I longed for as a parent, and it still did not exist. And so I was like, I'm doing this for all the parents in the world. This book came from my experience where, as a parent, we really want to make the best decisions for our kids. And we have so many decisions to make. And especially when you become a new parent, there are so many things you don't know about that you have to make decisions about. And the problem is there's so much competing information. So I would read a bunch of stuff about how sanitary my baby's environment needed to be, right? Is it okay to lick the pacifier clean, right? Is that okay or not really? And so I had all these questions. So I would read or around, you know, should I circumcise or not? Or is it okay to co-sleep? If I give them a pacifier, is that going to mean that he won't latch on for nursing? You know, I had all these questions and everything I read made me more confused because There's just so much conflicting information out there. Even the experts and the researchers are in disagreement with each other on many topics. And I was getting a lot of advice solicited and not that was in competition. So what I've done in this book is held the blurry eyed new parent in mind or a parent of a young child. And so the book is alphabetically arranged. 
And I've picked a little over 60 topics that are the ones that people get the most competing information about. And so each entry is broken down into what are the main arguments that are in conflict with each other, the different perspectives on this topic, like, for example, germs. Um, Babies have immature immune systems, and we really need to make sure their environment is sanitary. Perspective number two, having exposure to a lot of dirt and messes and all of that actually helps build the immune system. So you're like, which way do I go? And the second section of every entry in the book is called What the Science Says. Now, sometimes there's not good science, and there are several topics that people assume there's a lot of good science on, but there's really not. And so then I lay out good quality recent science, or I say that there isn't good research on it. And then the third section in every entry is a bottom line. So in this case, the bottom line is um, having children in dirt. And when you lick the pacifier clean and they're not in over sanitized environments, it actually builds their immune system and they have lower rates of allergies and eczema. So we don't have to be too over sanitary concerned. And then in about a third of the entries, I add my own note. So it's just called a note from Tina because I worked hard to make this very objective. But there are times where I disagree with the science or I understand the science, but I went a different way because it didn't work for me or my baby or my family. So I will put that in the personal note. What my hope is for this book is that it will empower parents in just a few minutes with knowledge and then they will feel confident in trusting themselves, trusting their babies, and trusting development. And I really make the point throughout the book, I really believe that even though there's the most controversial topics in there, like vaccines, sleep training, co-sleeping, circumcision, breastfeeding, all the things people attack each other about on both sides, I really believe that when parents read this, they will not feel judged regardless of what decision they make. And so The book helps us realize that a lot of the things we worry about as parents, we really don't need to worry about. And there are some things in there that we might not have thought of that we should be paying attention to, like how loud is the white noise machine Mm -hmm. in my kid's room? And it's so loud that it might be actually potentially damaging their hearing. So there, it really helps put things in perspective, but there is a bottom line to the bottom line of this book, which is what we've been talking about this whole time, which is really that no matter what you decide about most of these topics, what matters most is, like I say to parents, what your baby needs most from you. And we can say what your spouse, what your child needs most from you is you. And so it's really about showing up and having that quality of presence. And sometimes that might even make you change your mind on something like, you know, there are several things that take a lot of time to do, and that might mean you have less time to be really present with your baby. And so you might decide not to do them, even if the science recommends it, because you're a better parent for being able to show up and really be present. So I think it's really important that we all put that into perspective and understand that there are many, many ways to be a really great parent. And there's no one way in most cases. So anyway, I'm just really excited about it. I think it will help people, um, especially with grandparents who maybe are like, well, you turned out fine and you never rode in a car seat, you know, that kind of thing to be like, well, read the entry on car seats and see the safety information, you know? So I think it'll help arm parents a lot. So those of you who don't have young kids, still a great resource for a baby gift. um, Or if you become a grandparent, it's a good thing for you to get caught up to speed on all the latest science as well. Well, thanks so much for that, Tina. And we uh, highly recommend Tina's book. And also, The Power of Showing Up, which is a wonderful book. And you did a previous episode with us 
on that and talk in depth about safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And we'll point people back to that episode. So um, we really appreciate just the wealth of wisdom that you've given us today. And once again, thanks so much for joining us, Tina. Thank you so much for having me. And I wish all of you well as you work through this difficult time. Be present and make sure you take care of yourself so that you can be the kind of person in relationships you want to be. Thank you, Tina. And as I mentioned in the introduction, and we talked about earlier, our next episode is going to feature well-known voice actress and director Tracy Moore. Tracy was the voice of Cher Bear, Princess Toadstool, George in George Shrinks, and she was the original Sailor Moon, among many other roles. And she's going to give your family and children an exciting step-by-step workshop in how to create a fun two- to three-minute audio story with characters, voices, and sound effects, just like in your kids' favorite animations. We hope that you'll get creative and develop and record your own inventive story as a family activity. You'll then be invited to send us your audio story, and two will be chosen to play on one of our future episodes. And those families chosen will also get a special individual virtual workshop with Tracy. Now, like all entertainment, which we define as choice-full entertainment, the underlying purpose of this activity is to help develop choice-fullness, awareness, ability, and control. So in this episode, Dr. Ryer, who as a developmental psychologist has consulted with companies like Marvel and Nickelodeon and worked on projects like SpongeBob and The Land Before Time, is going to talk about character power styles, a topic directly related to helping your children develop self-management skills and to understanding emotional states and the emotions of others so important in developing empathy and dealing with bullying. So to sum it up, our next episode is designed to help to open the door for you to engage and communicate with your children on a different level, using indirect communication to discover their motivations, understand them better, and connect with them better. And just a reminder, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast providers. So until the next episode, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.